Hi, I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. Welcome to Season 3 of Stages Podcast, where we continue to bring creation and connection to center stage. I threw our names in an anagram scrambler oh, online did. because I had read that your name comes out to be Daddy Lives in Arabia. You heard that, <laughs> that once. I'm very proud of that. So I threw, uh, Stephanie, you're not going to believe what yours is. What am I? Bake Shop Lecton. The baker's bake? wife. <gasps> well, look at that. I mean, come on. Bake Shop what, Lecton? Lecton. Like Lecton's a protein that is in food. Ah, Isn't come on funny? now. Yeah. yeah, sure. And you know what mine was, sadly? Mm. Oh, no. Freaky lame brains. <laughs> I was like, really? I'm scrolling. I, there's not a better Guess one. Guess who me. has a I nickname? Get freaky lame brains. Guess yeah. who has a nickname? Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. Welcome to Stages Podcast, where we're bringing creation and connection to center stage. There are some writers that just resonate with me. I understand the humor immediately, yet the show will still surprise me in so many places. It's dark, yet silly. It's absurd, yet touching. I recognize and resonate with so many characters that our guest today has written. Now, this might be because we're both Bostonians, although he's from Southie and my family came from the North End, so it's Irish roots versus Italian roots. <laughs> Essentially, it's the same edge with a hint of slight difference in the Boston accent. But our guest today won the Pulitzer Prize. He's a playwright, a screenwriter, a lyricist, and a librettist. His play Good People won the Drama Critics Circle Award and had two Tony nominations. For his play Rabbit Hole, he received the Pulitzer Prize for Drama and five Tony nominations. It went on to become a film starring Nicole Kidman, Aaron Eckhart, and Diane Wiest. He wrote the book and lyrics for Shrek the Musical, which was nominated for eight Tony Awards, and his latest musical, Kimberly Akimbo, has received astonishing reviews from critics and audiences, and it's very close to my heart. The Broadway cast album is out now, and it is just joyful. We're so lucky to have him with us today. Please welcome David Lindsay Abair. David Lindsay Abair to stage, please. David, please come to stage. Nice. What a nice introduction. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. Am I allowed to jump right on in or ML, do you have something ready to no, go? No, go ahead. Go on. David, I am so, so interested in knowing that a lot of your primary character, the lead character, is a female character. Mm -hmm. And so for a male playwright to have this point of view as the central character, going through a lot of like with rabbit hole, the, the loss of a child. How do you tap into that sort of um, feminine point of view and write so intimately for the heart and soul of a woman? Uh, well, there are, I mean, there are a few reasons. The first reason is I just, for the longest time, have known amazing actresses, like mm. present company. Um, and when I was starting out, especially, so many plays were being written for men. And so I would ask myself as a writer, when thinking about a play, does it matter if the main character is a man or a woman? And if the answer was, it doesn't matter, then I would just automatically make it a woman to throw a few more roles onto the other side of the scales mm. um, and give some jobs to these women that I knew and loved and who deserved lead roles in plays. Wow. Um, 
So that's like the most literal and obvious answer. I, you know, if you talk to my therapist, there might be another answer. <laughs> uh, you know, when I think of the person who has influenced me the most, not surprisingly, it would be my mother. And my mother um, was the center of every single family event. She was an amazing storyteller. And she was the funniest person that I knew. Um, and she was also incredibly soulful and emotional and complicated and dimensional. And so it makes sense that I would try to people my plays with those kinds of women. Hmm. Um, and another thing is just, even though I say, oh, my mother is so present in all of these plays, as the writer, I am also inevitably very hmm. much in my own plays. And so to distance myself, I think, as a writer, by making the lead character a woman, I would think, well, I'm not writing about myself. This is a female character. It has nothing to do with me. And yet, in retrospect, it has everything to do with everything you. to do with yeah. me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Say that's my mother. Like those characters are very much me as well. And I honestly don't think, oh, this is a female character, and so I need to write it in this way. I'm trying to write, I I hope dimensional characters, and uh, I don't know if there's anything inherently difference between a man and a woman, and and when it comes to that, for me, in terms mm-hmm. of did you ever get worried though when you were writing so you know intimately because the characters are. Um, damaged most of them, but in a really touching way, right? Often. And so when you're writing and your mom is so present in there, when you worried when she came to see it and might recognize something not glorious about herself in the characters? That's a funny question. Um, one is I, what, <laughs> well, I wasn't so aware how much she was in there or any of my family members really. So I didn't worry it so much because I lied to myself about them being in it for the longest time. Mm -hmm. Um, So two things. Um, One, my mother would lie to herself just as much as I would. So (laughs) see my plays make, how do you come up with these crazy ideas? She would never see herself. Um, Not a mirror, but a window. Your mother was a window. (laughs) Yes. And it, and uh, it was my sister who would show up and say, well, the one that I remember most is she saw a play of mine and said, do you think dad is going to be upset? <laughs> I said, about what? <laughs> like, well, here and here and this and that and over here. And I thought, oh, my God, I had no idea how present my family was in the plays. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, as writers, sometimes we do have to sort of stick our heads in the sand and just pretend we're writing about someone else. And Kimberly specifically, you know, it's an old play. It's 20 years old. And seeing it now, I see things that I never saw back when I was first writing it that are very, very close to me. What made you know that Kimberly was going to sing? How did you know it would work as a musical? Well, I didn't. I, I didn't. That was that was entirely Janine. You know, we worked, as you mentioned, we worked on uh, Shrek the Musical together. Yeah. And, you know, that was a it was a wonderful project in many ways and really difficult in a lot of ways. And the difficult part was there were just so many people involved, including, you know, film producers who had never done a, a show mm-hmm. before, a mm-hmm. Broadway yep. show before. Yeah. Um, and so the best part for me was working with Janine. Um, and after that process, I said, God, I loved working with you. I would love to write another musical, but I wish that we could write it in the same way that I write a play. And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, nobody's breathing down my neck when I'm writing a play. It's just me. And it can be as bad for as long as it needs to be bad. It takes me a while to figure out a play. With a musical, you're constantly putting it in front of people and having them assess it and saying, nope, that's not it. Start over. Well, and, and they're assessing it with their own agendas, right? So the bottom line for the producers and yeah, so it's everybody's got an agenda and an opinion and it's shaping the show for you instead of you and Janine shaping your own vision. 
Exactly right. And also yeah. with uh, without knowing what the process is, you know, first draft is a first draft yeah. and seldom is a first draft perfect. It's usually, you know, there's an idea somewhere in there, but it's not here. It's actually, you know, buried in this bridge down here. Maybe that should become, anyway, that's what the process is. And if you're used to just cutting bait the way they do so often in Hollywood, it can be very difficult. Yeah. And so I said, I want to get in there and just be you and you and I for the longest time. And Janine said, absolutely, let's do this. How about one of your plays starting there? And I said, well, what do you mean? My plays are my plays. They're not musicals. And then she said, I, I don't know. She pulled Kimberly off the shelf and she said, this feels like it sings. And th this is why I think it sings. And it, of course, has to do with the characters' internal lives and that we can crack them open and they'll have things to sing about. And so that was that was Janine's idea. Going back to big corporate or studios, do you feel similarly like when you take your play Rabbit Hole and translate it then to a big mega budget movie, it was that a similar experience or different altogether? Uh, different altogether for Rabbit Hole specifically because it wasn't in fact a big giant Hollywood movie. It was mm. a very small micro budget movie. Uh, Nicole Kim approached me and said, look, I think there's a movie here. If you think there's a movie here, are you interested in doing it? And that by, by that point, I had in fact done a bunch of big Hollywood movies and, you know, they weren't always easy for me as a writer because whatever I was excited about, I would pitch it to them and they say, yes, that's fantastic. And then you get three or four drafts in and the notes start creeping in and whatever they were excited about seems to go off the rails a little bit. Right. And it just becomes a completely different animal where the writer is not in charge of the story. And so I said to Nicole, um, look, I'd love to do it as a movie, but I don't want to have that experience that I've had before. I would like to be in charge of the story. And I would like to know that that's actually the story that you want to tell. Um, and I would like to have some say about things. And she said, absolutely. We have no interest in turning it into something else. Um, and also we don't have very much money to offer you. So <laughs> I can I can give you the other stuff. And because that movie was shot for under $4 million <laughs> in 28 days. That's wow. so surprising. There was no money and there was no time. Um, which was sort of the best thing they had to make the movie. And by the way, we hired John Cameron Mitchell, who is a man of the theater, mm -hmm. um, and adapted his own piece, Hedwig, into what I mm -hmm. thought was a very successful film. Mm -hmm. He was so respectful of me as a writer and the process. And so it was sort of a dream experience in film in the way that uh, nothing else has been. I've had really good experiences and really bad experiences, but that's the one movie that I can point out and say, yeah, that's mine. I wrote it. There are other <laughs> movies where I feel like you know, I can watch them and I feel like an extra in the background where it's mm. like you're watching, you watch, you're like, oh, oh, there I am. If you sort of twist your head, you can see me back there. And four scenes later, I'm like, oh, there's a glimpse of me over there. And uh, uh, anyway, I think that's, that's beautiful that your Pulitzer is mm. now on film and it's pure. It is yours. It it's feels exactly like exactly the way you intended. Yeah, that's a happy ending. Can I ask you a little about your process? Are you the kind of person that writes every day? Do you have three projects going at once? How do you manage it? Uh, yes and yes. I do write every day. <laughs> I do have three projects in my head. Um, you know, because I don't do just theater, I am juggling film and television work. And often my day is dictated by deadlines. Who, who, who needs something the soonest? Uh, when it comes to specifically plays, often I have however many ideas are rolling around in my head for, for, for a long time, sometimes many years. Um, and I'm not quite sure if they're plays or not. And the way I generally work is 
when those ideas don't go away, then I feel like, oh, I think there might be a play there. And sometimes I'll take two or three of them and slam them together and see mm. if a play comes out. Mm. Um, so that's generally how my plays have come together. You know, with uh, Rabbit Hole, I had been, you know, before Rabbit Hole, I had written a bunch of really absurdist comedies. You know, I did very well critically with those plays half the time. Um, and then <laughs> half the critics really hated those plays with an unbridled passion. They thought they were so ridiculous and too stupid and silly and people don't behave this way. And I would see those same critics um, write very respectfully about naturalistic plays. Hmm. Whether the play was good or bad, whatever that means, they would dig in a little bit and try to figure out what the writer was going for. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. Why why are they so respectful of naturalistic plays? And this, you know, the cynical, spiteful part of me, which is a big part of me. Uh, <laughs> Salty we'll boy. Salty You're like, boy. Challenge accepted. <laughs> I am now going to write a natural tragedy and you all will adore me. Thank you. I didn't get to the adore part, but <laughs> yes, you did. Certainly, the fury, the fury was there. Uh, so, if I could write a naturalistic play if I wanted to, I just need two people sitting on a couch, maybe some running water in the background. Uh, but that said, I couldn't just write a play out of spite. I needed to write about something that I cared about. So, I didn't attack it immediately. But one of the other things that had been floating around in my head was Marsha Norman had said to uh, us as students when I was at Juilliard as a student. If you want to write about the, you want to write a good play, write about the, the thing that scares you the most. What is it that terrifies you that you can't shake? And when I was a student, I honestly didn't, I didn't know what that was. Yeah. Um, but then many years later, I had uh, a son. Um, and when my son Nicholas was around three, um, we heard sort of in quick succession stories of friends of friends uh, whose children had died very suddenly. Mm -hmm. Relatively new dad. I, of course, put myself in the shoes of those parents. And in yeah. so doing, I experienced yeah. fear yeah. in a way that I never had before. The The thought of losing this child just shook my heart. This is it. This is what Marsha was. Now I know what the thing is that terrifies me the most. And then I went back up into my brain and all those things floating around. And I thought, oh, maybe this is that naturalistic play that I've been thinking about writing. And there are a couple other things, and they all they all came together into rabbit hole just as an experiment to say, look, mm -hmm. I've never written this way. What happens if you do? And so mm -hmm. that's what it was. It was a test to myself to see if I could write that kind of play and what would happen if I did. What's so beautiful about that play is the way it unfolds. We get little tidbits of information that, that could be one thing or might be another thing, and then another layer comes to that. And then another, and so slowly, it's all revealed. It happens really slowly. And so if you're smashing together three or four different plays is that the part that comes at the end for you so you kind of have an outline and then you go back and think about how can I do this slow reveal or you know how it's going to unfold before you begin um I guess I mostly do it in order I mean now we're going to get in the in the weeds a little bit mm. um mostly I start with what what is what is it that I'm trying to write about um and so for that play I knew that I wanted to write about grief how do you write about grief? That's such a big thing. What about it? Um, and so in a play, you want to have conflict. Okay, well, what if people are grieving in a different way? There's mm. conflict. A husband and a wife at the most horrible time of their lives that mm. need each other so desperately, mm. now more than ever, can't connect because mm. they're grieving differently. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I just thought, are there other people grieving in different ways? Um, how can I get at that? Uh, 
if there's an accident involved, then there must be blame. People must blame themselves. Right. But I didn't want to have anybody who is, in fact, fully at fault because right. I think that would be too easy. And so carrying around guilt and shame and blame. But I also wanted a family that existed before this horrible event. Um, so there's all this stuff with her younger sister who is always you know, the fuck up in the family. You can bleep that if you have to. <laughs> um, and then the, the you know, Cynthia Nixon's character's mother, yeah. who was probably always overbearing and always problematic. That doesn't change because this horrible thing has happened. Right. All those relationships exist. Um, and also, I didn't want it to be a dour, sad, sad play because one, it's not who I am as a person. I think about where you mentioned Southie. Like I grew up very working class. My dad sold fruit out of the back of a truck for most of his life. My mother was a factory worker and, and our family and the families around us had horrible, horrible things happen to them. So much so that they were almost operatic in the way that we dealt with them, the way most working class people do is through, through humor. Right. Things are so terrible that you have to laugh at them. So I knew that there had to be humor in the play. So all of that gets tossed into the pot and how it's revealed. I I guess I sort of did it linearly, but I knew all that information while, while I was writing it. Mm -hmm. um, and I also, again, this is probably getting in too deep, but I also knew for the people that did know me as a writer, they were expecting something. And that was probably a comedy. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't. So when you, if you don't know anything about Rabbit Hole, when you walk in and you might know me a little bit as a writer, you think, oh, this is a funny play. It starts with the sister talking about this bar fight. And yeah. always it's funny and it gets so many laughs and not until, you know, seven minutes into the first scene, do we realize, wait, she's folding these clothes right. that she washed. There's something weird going on here. And it takes the audience a while to realize, oh no. I think there might be a dead child in this mm -hmm, play. Mm -hmm. And I could feel it every night where that where the laughter started to sour a little mm -hmm. bit um, and things were slowly revealed. Also as a playwright, and this is credit to Marsha Norman, again, as my teacher, she would often say to us, only let the audience know what they need to know at that moment. Don't tell them everything at the start. Let them discover it. Otherwise, your, your scenes are going to get bogged down by exposition that people probably don't need slash aren't ready to hear yet. I think that's what I was trying to say earlier is the slow reveal that you that you've seemed to have mastered where we get just enough information to answer the question that has occurred to us that we're a little bit confused. And then you give us just a little bit of information that moves us to the next spot. And these slow reveals, it's like when you are watching the beginning of Kimberly Akimbo and you're seeing this older woman and she's calling the younger woman mom and you're very confused and slowly you start to reveal the information and you do it at just the right time as to not lose the audience so it's fully entertaining and it gets them to listen really carefully well what i also find too david is that you're you're smart because you know you're speaking to human bodies and you can't just take the entire evening. So right. you fill up our tanks almost. And then throughout the evening, you deplete it a little by a little by a little. You'll fill it up again. And then at the end, you take just enough that we feel like we have had this 
crazy emotional roller coaster, but we're not stripped. It's, it's, there are plays that I feel like, oh my God, I just spent two hours with a vampire. They sucked me dry. Yeah. I've got nothing left. It was very emotional. And I'm glad I had an experience, but I feel less than than when I walked in. You can speak to tragedy and grief and all of the human emotions, but somehow I never feel like I'm empty when yeah. I leave. You didn't take from me. You actually still gave. And that that's not an easy balance, I would think, as a playwright. Well, that's an incredibly generous compliment. So thank you. I mean, I guess I'm honestly just trying to write the kind of play that I would want to see. So mm-hmm. like, I mean, some people actually love to be drained and want to cry their eyes out and not have any relief. And God bless them for that. That's not, I, I like to go in and out and be surprised that suddenly I'm laughing and then my breath is taken away. Those kinds of plays were always the plays that excited me. And so those are the plays that I aspire to. We were speaking with Lapine and he, we were asking also about his sort of method and, and how he writes and where he gets these characters. And he said, you know, I used to waiter and cater at these very fancy parties and I would watch all the people. And it was these just character traits and idiosyncrasies that uh, stuck with me. And that would form sort of this data bank of these characters. You're speaking about the neighbors that you grew up with. Did you always have a tendency? Did you always have a writer's mind to sort of pay attention and notice the character in the people that were around you? I I guess I did. I don't know how aware I was of it at the time, Um, but for sure uh, I was always, you know, for the lack of a better word, uh, an outsider. Mm -hmm. And um, I had read somewhere another writer had said, well, as writers, we're always going back usually to a time when we're 11 or 12, and we revisit that over and over and over again. Usually something Mm -hmm. happens around that time for us. And I thought, huh, is is that true? Where was I at 11 and 12? And in so thinking, I remembered, oh, right. That was the year that I got a scholarship to a private school. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got the six-year scholarship through the Boys and Girls Club. To, uh, as I mentioned, I grew up in South Boston, very working class. And I got a scholarship to Milton Academy, which is this wonderful private school out in the suburbs. And every day I would get on the train and travel all the way out to Milton and attend classes with all these generally wealthy kids um, that would, you know, go off on vacations and come back with tans, whether they were in (laughs) sunny places or they had gone skiing when I had spent those two weeks watching television. Mm -hmm. Uh, And every day I would go back to, you know, Southie. Uh, And so that was defining. Of course, I was the poor kid that ended up on this amazing campus wondering, what the hell am I doing here? How Mm -hmm. do I fit in? This Mm -hmm. feels like I've fallen into wonderland. Nothing makes sense. And then after a couple of years of the educate of that education, wonderful education, by the way, I would go home to South Boston and feel like an outsider in my own home. I mm-hmm. loved my family and they loved me, mm-hmm. but I was being exposed to things that they knew nothing about, mm-hmm. theater in particular, literature, things that, you know, were foreign to them. And so I had spent, now I was living my life in two very different worlds, not wholly belonging to either one of them, of course, mm-hmm. right? And so I think, huh, I guess that's where I was at 11 and 12 and 13 and 18, right? And so what are my plays? My plays are generally about people that find themselves in an upside down world where nothing makes sense and they have to sort out how they fit into this world. Yeah, where they fit in. 
that's true. Fuddy Mears, a woman wakes up with an amnesia. And right. something as different as rabbit hole, where this woman who had total control of her life, it's turned upside down because her kid ran in front of a car and was killed. So those plays are very different. And yet they have that connective tissue, just as much as Kimberly Kimbo, just as much as every play I've written. I didn't know it at the time, yeah. but standing back, it, Mar again, I'm going to mention, mention Marsha Norman 4,000 times. But Marsha Norman said to us at Juilliard, we all have our stuff. Don't be afraid of writing the play over and over, the same play over and over again, because they'll all be different, but we all have our stuff. And for me, yeah. Marsha Norman would say, it's Lost Girl. Everything that I've written is about a lost girl. For you, mm -hmm. it's something else. And I thought, oh, I think I know what my stuff is. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. It's maybe that's why I can sort of resonate with your characters so well, because I grew up very, very Italian, same kind of thing. I was the first kid to go off to college. So I didn't go to a private high school, but I did. I was the first person in my family to go to college. And I remember showing up for my voice and articulation class and she almost fell out of her chair when I had to read from the book because my accent was so thick. I mean, my father was, you know, not done and it was really I mean, I, that's how I spoke as I, it, she gave me like seven pages of notes on how to get rid. I'll never forget it. She said, can you say the word cat? And I said, yeah, cat. And she said, now say the word man. And I was like, man, she goes, no, the same a in cat is the a in man. I'm like, no, it isn't. And she's like, <laughs> oh my God, we have so much work to do. But I remember coming home to my neighborhood and to my friends and trying to say things like man and put the R on the end of beer and being mocked mercilessly by yeah. my family, my brothers, my friends. And, and that was when that feeling of like, where do I fit in in this world? Like theater yeah. felt like the only place I could find a space with, where I was really comfortable and I fit in. So I, I think that's why your characters, I can really relate because I feel that from them, that search for belonging, that finding themselves in the upside down land, as you said, I, I really resonate with them. It's really So nice. I ask you both, yeah. do your families now that you're both accomplished with higher educations, do they recognize you? They still love you, of course, but do they recognize you? <laughs> well, I think for me, it depends on which member of my family you're talking. I'm not sure that they recognize it. No, no. My mother certainly does. I don't think my parents do either. They really embraced when I would do community theater, regional theater. All of a sudden, I stepped into a different realm, perhaps one that we always just thought was going to be a, a dream that was never achieved. But then when it was achieved, I would long for them to give me the compliments that I always wanted to hear, mm. and they just never could. They then could two days later when I'm exhausted and unshowered and sitting on a couch, they could come up and say, you know, we're so wonderfully proud of you and we love you so much. Stink, you know, whatever, reverting back to a Stephanie that they recognized when I was growing up. I, th I think they can appreciate what they're watching, but I believe I'm still a foreign creature to them when they're seeing me in the moment. They have no idea who I am, how I'm doing what I'm doing, where I came from. And it's just this very strange thing. Yeah, for me, I guess it's 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 both, honestly. I mean, I was always an alien, even before I went to the private school. I was always mm. a nerdy kid that read a lot. And so who who is this weird kid, you know? And then certainly once I went to the private school and now that I'm doing theater and met the success that I've met, I, they are both deeply proud of me and I'm I'm an alien to them and I always mm -hmm. will be. And yet 
no one knows me more than my sister. Yeah. Well, that's true yeah. too. And it is that duality that I always found so confusing, you know, that they know so many things about me, yet they can't recognize this part of me, the part that is screaming to be recognized, right? But uh, I don't know, it's hard for our families, I think, to embrace that. Yeah. Well, it's so funny because, well, two things. One, no one will keep you humbler. Like they will keep you in your place, boy. And especially a bo- the the Boston humbling is especially. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh like it's anything so... good. It's like, yeah, gosh. I yeah. yeah. Good for like, you. Oh, Look at you. Good, good for you. you. Good for you. Yeah. Like, and they mean it. And yet they also, <laughs> whatever success I would have, I would be so excited and tell my mom. And she's like, well, yeah, of course. Of course, I knew that was going to happen. I was like, no, this is actually impossible. What I have accomplished, not, not like no big deal. Like this is a big deal. And so they keep you hung- humble. But even the great stuff is sort of like, well, yes, you were meant to have that. You're the greatest person that ever lived. Of course, I told you. I, I remember. I did my solo concert at Carnegie Hall. My parents, I had to ask them, please come. I think maybe they only came because my daughter was being baptized in the same weekend. But okay, that's a whole different situation. But they did come. And after the concert, my mother walks up and she's in awe. And she goes, oh my God, Stephanie, I have never seen your wedding ring shine the way it did on that stage. That was it. That was the compliment. It's so funny. To be fair, my my poor dad, who was so old fashioned, I, I really was an alien to him. He did not understand me. I remember when I, after college, I was going backpacking and he said, where the hell are you going? And I said, Dad, I'm going to Australia and Tahiti. I'm just going to get in a plane. And I'm just going to go see the world. And he's like, the Christ is wrong with you. You get in your car, you drive to Maine. There's nothing between here and Maine. You're going to find any place else. What's your problem? And I was just this alien. And so then when I wouldn't, you know, I didn't get married. I didn't have a lot of boyfriends. I, he, then he asked me once if I was gay, what's wrong with you? You don't wear makeup. You ain't got a boyfriend. And then when I finally got to New York and started working, you'll remember Steph, when he came to Branson, you know, to him, me starring across from Pat Boone was like, that was the ultimate. And he sat in the front row. Pat Boone, 12 shows a week with Will Rogers Follies. And to my dad, I had finally, I mean, that was it. Yeah. And so I floated down from the moon. I came down, I sang my opening song and my father stood up, started clapping and he goes, that's my kid. And he turned around to everybody, stand up. And I'm like, oh my God, dad, it's just the first number. They don't stand up yet, dad. I mean- it was so foreign to him, you know, but in the end, he he used to say, I can't believe, I don't know where you came from. So I do think we theater people and we just, we are these like strange little aliens. And Yeah. Now that you're co-director at um, Juilliard's American, is it the American Playwrights? Uh, it's the Lila Allison Wallace American Playwrights Program. Yes. That's a lo- that's a mouthful. Yeah. When you see the younger generation coming up, are you finding there is a different way to nurture them in this day and age? I can only speak to a very, very minimal experience, which is like a two-hour masterclass or a two-hour Q&A. The way in which I have been taught to approach now these days is the first 20 minutes is a bit of a disclaimer expressing who I am with my pronouns. I want it to be a a very safe space for everybody. I'm finding that even in my very 
slim moments of teaching, um, I'm having to choose my words very carefully and edit as, as I go. And mm -hmm. somehow I feel like I've lost a bit of, uh, an art form or some critiquing that I could give that could really help or improve in my estimation anyway, um, right. what these two hours could be because of the delicacy with which mm -hmm. we're handling students now. Are you finding that? And how do you navigate that if you do in fact see that in, in Juilliard? Um, yeah, yeah, I see it a lot, but they are, they've been really terrific in terms of giving us the tools and the workshops that we need to help navigate that stuff. Mm -hmm. So at this point, I've done it so much that I feel like, okay, I, I, I feel pretty good about navigating it. Um, and also creating a safe space and saying, look, if, uh, I co-teach with Tanya Barfield. If Tanya or I say something that bumps you, let us know. Like we we want to be better. We all want to do better. Same for us. If you you say something that that bumps us, then we're all going to talk about it. Mm. Um, we're all figuring this out. And so, and and the students have been so respectful about it. It's a very small room. We only let in four writers a year. And it's a wow. So there are only eight eight young writers and then me and Tanya. So the relationships are deep. That grows deep in two years. Yeah. So, I mean, the harder part is navigating the feedback, actually, not about not around the language, uh, but more every writer is different and what they want to hear or what is helpful to them is individual to them. And so we try to get each writer to to leave the discussion themselves. Every week, somebody brings in a play. They write three plays a year. And so. <sighs> We'll we'll read the play. Usually, just the writers will read the play aloud, and we'll say, "Fantastic! What would be most helpful to you right now?" And you know, they'll say, "Oh, I I have you know just popcorn responses, and then I'll have some specific questions later." Or I just wanted to hear it out loud. Mm -hmm. um, I need to sit with it myself for a little bit. That seldom happens. Usually, we do have a talk back. Um, sometimes they aren't aware of how personal it is to them until they hear it out loud. And mm. so they might feel a little more vulnerable than they thought they might've mm. been when they brought it in. So that's the harder part to navigate. And also we don't want to write their plays for them. And so we try to ask them the questions that will get them, get them to write the play that they, it seems that they want to write. Mm. And so that's the harder, harder part because we're delicate little beast writers. And I include yeah. myself in that. Um, and, you know, what we need to hear can vary from play to play, not just from playwright to playwright, but every every piece that we bring in is different. So, so you only accept four writers a year, but how many hopefuls submit to you every year? I think there are about three hundred. Wow, maybe maybe slightly more than that, you know, give or take. But it's around three hundred a year. Yeah, it's wow. really competitive. It's it's tricky, and there are so many wonderful plays and playwrights out there. Um, it's hard to, it's hard to assess. I, I, Tanya and I don't have to read all of them. We have amazing readers that narrow down the pile. And then yeah. once we get the pile for the finalists, then we have to, you know, pick those four writers. Wow. And usually it comes down to who, who do we feel is going to benefit most from the program? Because it's a very specific program. Um, and so there, there could be writers that are just like, they're beyond us. They don't actually need our help. They're, you know, far enough down the road, mm. or you can sense, now inside baseball a little bit like it seems like the this person maybe is less interested in getting feedback from playwrights it seems like they want to put juilliard on their resume so they can uh -huh. go off the tv gig uh -huh. which is true sometimes you know and so it's hard to suss that out um but you want people who genuinely want to be there and who genuinely want to write plays um and also are open to thinking about writing in a different way mm -hmm. otherwise you know what what are, what am i doing there was tanya doing there you know 
I heard you talking in another podcast about how you would have weekly or monthly gatherings of writers where you would gather together and just work through projects together. Do you still do that or did COVID end that? Yeah, it's a it's a writer's group. <laughs> it came out of Juilliard, actually. We A bunch of us graduated from Juilliard um, and, and said, well, now what do we do? And it was a couple of friends of mine said, uh, well, let's just do what we did at Juilliard, but let's try to do it without Chris Durang and Marsha Norman, who were our teachers. Mm -hmm. And so we started meeting in each other's living rooms uh, once every couple of weeks. And that was over 20 years ago. And we <sighs> still try to do it. The pandemic threw us off a little bit, but the but we still try to do it. And the group has changed and people have come and gone. And, you know, a lot of people are writing TV shows and, and film scripts now. And so it's expanded in that way as well. But it's just incredibly helpful to have a cohort of people yeah. who who speak the same language and know how to res respond to each other's work in a very safe way. And have yeah. you seen a lot of the ideas that popped up in those writers groups come to fruition and end up on Broadway or end up on TV screens? And For sure. Yes. Yeah. Lots and lots, lots. Every play that I've written in the past 20 years has gone through that group. Kimberly wow. Akimbo went through that. The, Did the it. Uh, Janine said, can we have your writers group? And I was like, well, we don't really do musicals much, but she's like, they can all come to my studio. We'll just play the songs that we had. And so that's what we did. We all went to Janine's studio and we Janine sang all the songs and they read all the parts. And even Kimberly Kimmel, the musical went through the writers group. Oh, yeah. that's wow. so great. David, yeah. in the 20 years, so... You're seeing your play, Kimberly Akimbo, and the way audiences are responding. And now, 20 years later, Kimberly Akimbo, the musical and the audiences. Do you see that there is any sort of a major difference with the way people are responding? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I of course, go to how am I responding differently. So well, that's, answer that, too. That's very interesting. I mean, when I wrote the play, uh, I was more invested in the teenage characters because they were closer to me. Mm -hmm. I was much younger. Mm -hmm. and, I mean that character that Justin Cooley plays, it was originally played by Johnny Gallagher. That is the closest that I've ever come to putting myself on stage. That's, oh, that's I'm you. Also, well, a version of me, but I'm just as much in Kimberly and, you know, the parental stuff. There's a lot going on that was familiar to me. Um, so having the, the opportunity to revisit all of those characters 20 years later, I'm now a dad with two boys and I know what it's like to be the parent of teenagers. And so the parents were really reinvestigated in a way that I could only do now as a parent um, and realize, ah, I don't know, they're not so monstrous. All of their bad behavior is rooted in this, rooted in this terror of losing their child. Yeah. Um, and so just my way into the play has changed, but also just what Janine's music has brought to the story is, is, Earth, earth shakingly different. Um, you can just access emotion through music in a way that is impossible in a play. You can try to do it in different ways, but you just hear the line of a cello sometimes yeah. and you don't understand why your yeah. eyes are warming up. That's right. Yeah. That's just the magic of, of music. And so yeah. I hope that I've improved as a craftsman. I hope that I've deepened as a person, but also just the gift that music brings to the story. It feels more emotionally deep. It feels more emotionally engaging. Um, it just feels better in a lot of ways and and different. It feels more mature in a way from, mm. the, from the play, which makes sense because I'm yeah. older. You're more mature? Well, I have to ask, did you grow up playing the tuba? I did not. Is <laughs> <laughs> he calling me? And now it's time for the five questions. 
If your life was a book, what would this current chapter be called? Oh wow! I really these would be these answers would be so good if I had prepared. Oh, they get they get more difficult, Mister. <laughs> oh, God, say, say it again. If your life was a book, what yes. would the current chapter that you're living be called? Great adventure. Oh, that's nice. We're on an adventure. <laughs> yeah. If we were to call your closest friends and family and let them know that you have been arrested, what would they have assumed that you've done to get yourself in jail? Uh, check washing, mail fraud. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is all Kimberly. Yeah, that came a little too yeah, okay. easy. Okay, okay. If we were to go into your closet, is there an item or a piece of clothing in there that you will never let go of because of the memories it holds? Yes. I mean, there are a few. One is one of the nicest things. Um, Greg Ruder was an actor who was in Shrek the Musical, and we shared a birthday. He has since passed away, and he was mm -hmm. the sweetest guy. Um, and we would text and email each other on each other's birthday. Hey, birthday twin. And during um, the run of Shrek, um, he brought me a sweatshirt and said it was like one of those uh, sporty kind of sweatshirts where it usually says the team name the mm -hmm. or whatever it is. And it was, I'm like, Oh, he's got me a sporty sweatshirt. I'm not a sporty guy. <laughs> Instead of the tigers or, you know, whatever it happened to be, it said Pulitzer across it. Oh, uh, the sweetest, it's the sweetest thing. And I, of course I would never wear it because that would be so obnoxious. <laughs> um, that is the thing that will always be in my closet. You can wear it, it just around the house on a bad day. No. It just made me think of something, though, in researching you and, and sniffing around a little bit. When you went to um, Sarah Lawrence College, you got, your mascot was the Griffins. And in high school, I, too, was the Griffins. But you guys spelled it G-R-Y-P-H-O-N-S. And I was like, OK, now I know who I'm speaking with. I mean, I'll, I'll admit that I'm surprised to hear that we had a mascot. So <laughs> Coming Park. from the Latin term griffons. Right. right. I mean, All right. Let's like intramural smoking at Sarah. <laughs> the sport that I remember. Um. All right. I'll bring you back down to earth with this question. Yeah. If you were pizza, are you thin crust, thick crust, deep dish, and what is on your pizza? No. Is this my essence as a person? Yes, your essence. I, no, I need oh, David that's, that's the pizza. Different. Yeah, your palate is different than your person. <laughs> I'm going to have that put on a sampler. Add um, Pulitzer to it, and then we've got a whole lot of alliteration, and you're too fancy for anyone. All right. Um, all right. Definitely deep dish. Great. Um, I have to tell you my to toppings. Yes. Yeah. Are you all spicy? Right. Are you pepperoni? Only spices, a little bit of ground meat in there of some okay. kind. Okay. Lots of, lots of green peppers and mushrooms and things under the cheese that you don't know are there until you bite into it. Oh, there's a lot nice. of mystery. Nice. A lot of mystery. I like oh, yeah. it. Yeah, I yeah. I like it. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Final question. Oh, if you were a nail polish color, what color would you be and what would the cheeky little name be? It would be like a like a a brick, orangey kind of reddish combo, and the name of it would be Boston baked beans. Yes, <laughs> yes! 
I love it. I, I do too. You are a total pleasure. I loved spending this time with you. Thank you. Why with you. Thank you both. Thank you so yeah. much. Thanks. Yeah. And good luck with Kimberly and everything that's coming up this spring because we're so excited. Thank you. Yeah. It's a wonderful show. It's a total blast. Thank you both. Thank Thank you. you. And now here's what struck a chord with us. Charming, delightful, down to earth. I mean, all the things you want. Yeah. When you see his plays, that's who you expect, you know, because the... I just love the characters in his shows. Well, I'll tell you. I mean, my first question was about, you know, a male mind writing primarily female characters. I felt the same way with Tracy Letts, but here's the thing. Back in the day, I would just look at the program and see Tracy Letts and assume it was a woman, right? So I'd see August Osage and go, oh, well, yeah, it was written by a woman, Tracy Letts. So when I find out that they are male playwrights, but yet they can get in there, you know, so much of them goes into their writing. It's not about being male or female. It's about being human, just going through whatever they're going through. That's right. Yeah. Can I ask you a little bit just to change gears? Can you talk to me a little about what your experience this uh, past few weeks was like with Ms. Norma Desmond? Well, here's the deal. My greatest pride comes from everything that I set out to do with the character and with the piece, we did. And that was a bit of a a question mark for me because Norma Desmond has been played in such a way that more of a, uh, I don't know, a theatrical fireworks and deranged and an oddity that people come to the theater to see the bizarreness of Norma Desmond. They want to see, yes. Mm -hmm. And I just kept thinking, I know this is a human being. This is a woman who wants to be loved, who wants to belong. It's not just about holding on to youth and stardom, although that's part of it because that was her worth. That's how she was labeled and deemed worthy to be in the world was because of what she looked like and what she could do on the screen. Mm -hmm. And there's mental, severe mental health issues here. Mm -hmm. And truly, if there were the right medications, if, if it was different, if there was even discussion about mental health, Mm -hmm. that this story would look quite different. The the words that came out for me when Joe Gillis said, you know, he doesn't say she's wacky. He doesn't say she's atrocious. He says that Norma Desmond's quite a character. And he says, I like the woman. I like her folly. There's a lot of words there that are easy to hold on to as an actress and say, okay, these are, these are good words. Folly Mm -hmm. is good. Being a character is fun, you know? Mm -hmm. So I really set out to do that. And I didn't know if it was going to be embraced because it is so wildly different. different. Mm. And thank goodness. I've never experienced what's happening here at the Kennedy Center. There are mid-song standing ovations. Um, oh my God! It's so without Graf out in the audience screaming at people to stand it's up. It's so wild. There's no Daddy Graf. There's no Papa Graf saying <laughs> That's do this. That's amazing stuff. It's it's really really something. So I know with the direction that we took and the specificity and nuances that we created Norma and the relationship between Norma and Joe, it's not grotesque. It's actually beautiful and heartbreaking. And we all know how it's going to end, but to see 
all of the difficulties and beautiful moments that get them there, to me, it just makes it even more heartbreaking to play. And I think much more relatable and heartbreaking um, for the audience. So it's just a different take, but for the moment, it's hitting all the right buttons. And I'm, wow. I'm just really glad about that. Oh man, I'm so sad that I didn't get down to see it. I'm so as am sad. I, as am I. But you, but, you know, like we said, when it's just a week, it's yeah, it's, it's hard, really hard to arrange. Yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. And I was taking my teenager to look at colleges, which um, I can't even believe that that sentence can come out of my mouth that we're looking <sighs> at colleges. You know, it makes you reassess your your own life and your experience and like my attitudes as I was going into college and what I would do different. And when I see, when I see that there could be an inkling that he would make the same mistakes that I made, like you mm. just, you don't want them to make the same mistakes. And and so you try not to lecture, but you try to just like put the little things in there that they might pick up on. But it's, it's yet another exercise in parenting where you allow your child to make their own mistakes because you can't yeah. make them for them and you, you can't make them learn from yours. Right. right. It's not, not that I'm saying he's making mistakes, but I think looking at the schools is making me remember all the things that I would do differently. So then I get worried that he'll make the mistakes, if that yeah. makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. And, you know, there's something I'm not using this on Vivi just yet. Well, maybe I am just in different language, but David mentioned it with his students, you know, share with me. And now what do you need from me? We definitely want to share what we yes. think is right or what we've learned. Yep. But I always go back to what my pastor said years ago is unsolicited advice is going to be taken as criticism. Yes, yeah, it's yeah. not help. It yeah. is criticism. So you have yeah. to kind of wait for the ask or the space or ask them. Hey, it's really true. What is this? What do you want from me right now? Do you just want a mama ear or a friend ear or a teacher ear? Or are you looking for a little bit of feedback in this you know, moment? I think that's such an important thing in any relationship, right? What do you need from me right now? Yeah. I don't yeah. think I asked that question enough. I think I'm too busy trying to either please or fix. And I think that's a flaw. It's even it, it's same thing with love. You can love someone, but if it's not in the way that person needs to be loved, they don't recognize it in yeah. that way, you know? And I, I'm just going back to my parents who love me. I know they love me immensely, but it's just <clears throat> the way it's shown. I have to then interpret, look at them, think mm -hmm. of me. And so this whole like mathematical equation has to happen before I get to the part where I go, ah, okay, I'm okay with the response or the lack of response or because that is their interpretation of love. So mm -hmm. now I need to translate it. It's yeah. a lot of bits of work in yeah. order to receive. You leave, you leave the offering. heart, you go to the head, you sort That's it right. out, you come back to the heart, you try. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. You try to find yeah. that balance. That's really true. Well, this uh, was really, really fun. He's He's so wonderful. Um, he is wonderful. You haven't seen Kimberly Akimbo yet, have you? I have you? Oh, not. Stop. It is so touching, so adorable, so joy-filled, yet heartbreaking. You're going to you love know, it. But maybe one of these nights after rehearsals, I can um, get into Kimberly Akimbo if I'm not completely wiped. Because that, I don't want the season to pass without oh, me Lord. being in the seat and experiencing it. It's so great. It's so great. <sighs> All right, my friend. I love you. I Go love get you some rest. Okay, and, I will. Uh, see you soon. I miss you. I miss you too. Bye, ML. Bye. 
Stages podcast is produced and edited by me, Mary Lee Fairbanks, and Stephanie J. Block. Thank you to Allison Arns, our booking agent, Brock Grenfeld, our sound engineer, and Tina Wargo, our social media manager. Original music by Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy. Thank you for subscribing, following, rating, and telling others about this very special podcast. And we'll see you soon. 